What's new in science this week? What's new in science this week? Bench talk, the week in science. Bench talk. Bench talk. Bench talk. You are now listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. Bench Talk, the, the week, week in, in science. science. Dave Robinson here. Good day to you all. Did you catch our show last week? It was a panel discussion featuring some of Kentucky's foremost experts on bourbon production. It was Dr. Lenny Demaranville of Center College, Dr. Seth DeBolt of University of Kentucky, Dr. Pat Heist, a co-founder of Firm Solutions in Danville, Kentucky, and Dr. John Medley of Buffalo Trace Distillery in Frankfort, Kentucky. The discussion was facilitated by Amanda Fuller, Executive Director of the Kentucky Academy of Science, as part of the cooperative Bench Talk Live series. Well, today we're going to tune back into that discussion. Let's listen in right now. So you mentioned one of the projects, and Pat sort of mentioned sequencing whole, whole genomes and the challenge that, that's there. What's going on with the whole genome project that you guys are working on with White Oak, and what are sort of its scientific goals, and what have you accomplished so far? And honestly, it's just a... I'm really proud of the forethought, the industry, and it comes from Maker's Market Independent State Company just said, don't worry about waiting for federal funding for that. Get it done now because really we think about the trees that decorated the forests of the eastern United States that have been lost in the last 100 years. I mean, these are just these seminal flagship trees that <laughs> could have jumped on a chestnut branch, they say, in Georgia and run all the way to Maine without hitting the ground if you're a squirrel. And it was such a loss to the ecosystem broadly, not just the flora, but the fauna. And similarly, White Oak holds that same foundational conservation value that it's not just the barrels. That would be a tremendous loss to lose those barrels behind John there. They'd be vanished. We lost White Oak, but it's also just how long lived they are. They, they really hold an immense ecological value. And untapping that genome and understanding why has this organism lived for that long? Some of those stories will be told when we understand that genome. And already we've, we've got about 99% of it done. And we're now overlaying some other comparative genomes. And it's, it's a huge genome. This thing outcrosses. It doesn't um, self. So it's a very complex heterozygous genome. And we're trying to really stitch the whole thing together and, and make sense. And then figure out what makes barrels so interesting. They hold water, for instance. That's pretty cool, but it's also a big piece of societal history. When you look back at French and American oak and how commonly it was used to hold liquids, we don't understand very much at all about tylose biology. And we could understand just having the, the sequences there that we can go and interrogate and just understand why that's amazing. Why did it choose this path? And so I think there's a lot of just really scientific goals that are purely for conservation and the value of knowledge. So you mentioned in there the, the tylose biology and, and the ability of those oaks to hold water. For those that aren't familiar with that, could you talk a little bit about how those two things are connected and what makes white oak better than others for other woods for holding water? I've heard they've made barrels out of white oak, I mean, sorry, red oak and 
I'll be out of chestnut and, and then you put it, fill them up with bourbon and come back in two years and they're empty because of all the, the liquid would, would leak out of those barrels more rapidly. It wouldn't be instantaneously. Uh, you would get an increase in loss as a result. And that's undesirable for uh, the liquid holding. Excellent, thanks. And so there are a number of projects that, that sort of have gotten mentioned that are related to, to sustainability. Pat, you gave a TEDx talk about climate change and the impact on the bourbon industry. And I know TEDx talks are already short, but could you shorten it down even more? Maybe you're, I think if I remember, you had to have three points. Is that what we talked about in that rehearsal? Um, what some of those main points are? Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, I'll boil it down to one-tenth of my TED Talk length. You know, Kentucky's in a very interesting kind of a microclimate. If you look at the states surrounding Kentucky and kind of moving outward from Kentucky, most other states in the nation have had a significant overall change in the average temperature. Kentucky has not had much of an, a change in the overall average temperature in, uh, in over 100 years. However, there have been, have been an increase of high and low temperatures, but the average has kind of remained sort of a static. Now, another thing that we've had is an increase in severe weather events. So, uh, you know, heavy rain, extended drought. So as Kentucky inevitably is going to start becoming more like the surrounding states have become, it, it's inevitable that our climate will affect the way that bourbon ages. So things like, you know, a lot of people don't realize, but before whiskey's ever put into the barrel, you got the trees growing out in the woods. You know, their physiological, you know, existence is, is affected by the weather and the climate. Um, you have the fact that that wood is air dried and seasoned for our barrels are aged for 18 to 24 months prior to construction of the barrel. The wood is actually stacked outside and allowed to season. So if you look at, you know, differences in rain. I mean, that's dependent on rainfall and hot temperatures, cold temperatures, very different seasons, which, you know, the air drying of the wood prior to construction of the barrel affects the porosity of the wood. It affects how certain acids like tannic acid will volatilize out of that wood over time. There are large wood compounds being broken down into smaller wood compounds by the process of decay which is happening out there is those staves set before construction of the barrel. So there's a lot of different things that affect, you know, the barrels aging in the warehouse. There's chemical reactions that are occurring. There's alcohols condensing with organic acids to form esters, for example. And any chemical reaction is going to be somewhat dependent on the temperatures. Uh, evaporative loss is another very important thing. If, if humidity changes in Kentucky, so those are kind of just some of the bullet points relative to climate change that could affect the flavor or the quality of bourbon. And so sort of keeping along those same lines, the, the next step with that is how do we act responsibly in our own industries and in our own ways in terms of climate change and other sustainability issues. And um, Seth mentioned, and I know that it's going on at, at Wilderness Trail, one of the big problems with the industry is what to do with, with stillage. And I know you and Shane have developed a new sort of system, the first, first used at least in, in a, a distillery that, we, that you know of. Could you talk a little bit about that process and how it works and both 
improves your your sustainability in terms of the environment? Yep. Stillage is the leftover water and the grains that come off the distillation process. So whenever you take your fermented beer, you remove the alcohol from it, you've got the leftover water and the grain. So that's collectively referred to as stillage. And historically, that's given we give that away to cattle farmers to feed their cattle. But it's very low in dry matter. It's about nine, seven to nine percent dry matter. So you can only drive so far before you're you're out of money, basically. So we need to find a way to, I mean, a lot of big distilleries, they run through centrifuges to remove the solids, and then they'll take the, the thin part of that, run it through evaporation, which then the evaporator condensate is, it goes through anaerobic digestion. It's a very complex process to clean that stuff up. So what we did is we were actually visiting a dairy farm, and we were helping them to make vodka out of their leftover whey from their uh, yogurt production facility. And we just noticed, hey, you guys got 38,000 head of cattle here. What do you do with all the cow crap? And they're like, oh, we run it through this system over here and it pulls the water out here, have a glass. And we're like, what are you talking about? So we, we refused the glass of water, even though it looks very clean and, and tasty. But we were like, I wonder if we could adopt that same technology to stillage. So we have the only operational, it's called ultra filtration technology. And the beauty of that system is the water that it pulls out of the stillage, it's clean enough to run through an RO system. So we can clean it up to make it clean enough to discharge or certainly use it in our system. So currently we're running the only unit of its kind at a distillery anywhere in the world and we're having really good results with it. So it could revolutionize the way that we look and deal with stillage here in the state of Kentucky, which is one of the biggest problems that distilleries have. I don't know if Seth or, or John, do you have any other sort of sustainability initiatives that you know about that are going on that would be interesting to mention? Nothing quite on that scale. Uh, at Buffalo Trace, you know, we're in the midst of a huge expansion and we're building about three new warehouses per year. At, at Buffalo Trace, we have historically heated our warehouses during the winter for a variety of reasons. And with these new warehouses, we actually are using a, an incredibly efficient patented heat exchange system to heat those in the winter. So somebody once told me it was 100% efficient. Uh, I then went back and, and realized that uh, in the first thermo class that I ever took, that's impossible. But, but I think we're pretty close. It is basically an ambient system, so there's not a lot of moving parts. So it's, it's very efficient because it's not a complex system. And then going back to the, the wastewater that, that Pat talked a lot about, one thing that, that people don't realize, you know, if we make beer during the fermentation process, we might get to, say, 8% alcohol. If we want that to be 80% alcohol coming off the still, that means that for every gallon of, of alcohol that we produce, we produce about nine gallons of waste. By the time you take the solids out of that, I don't know the number, but it's, you know, probably around eight gallons of water, give or take. So it's a lot of water. And we are also very conscious of that as we're, we're building, we've actually made the decision to build our own waste treatment facility at Buffalo Trace. So we've historically pre-treated and sent, sent waste to the city, which worked pretty well most of the time, but, but with our increasing volumes, we didn't want to overwhelm their system. So we just broke ground on a new system that will allow us to, to treat the water, basically turning it into drinking water. So it's a, a more traditional wastewater treatment facility than, than what Pat has. But again, making sure that the effluent from our distillery when it goes into the river is, is not polluting the environment. 
basically zero sum game. We take water out of the river, we put it back in and it's at least as clean as, as it was when it came out. No, I'd add to that just some of the really incredible um, initiatives. Beam Centauri, just a very ambitious goal to hit carbon, 50% carbon reduction by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2040 and, and water as another big piece of their, their global focus on clean watersheds and clean water. And I know Buffalo Trace is also really moving into an interest in agriculture, an interest in oak, an interest in supporting those environmental themes. It's really exciting and really incredible that, that these folks are taking that time to think upstream. And it really presents incredible challenges for the group people here on this call. I don't know if, uh, you know, the, the reach of the Kentucky Science Academy, but this is something that is a, it's going to take a really big group effort. And I think universities and, and training students to be thinking about these opportunities is uh, something we should be doing and challenging them with, challenging ourselves with. Yeah, I was just going to add, taking step a step back, I think that the, the bourbon industry is, is fairly unique in its interest in the environment. You know, if you look at the, the cultural heritage of bourbon, you know, it, it goes back hundreds of years and kind of the, the generational investment in, in whiskey when you're putting away things for, even if you're putting away whiskey for six years, you know, you're, you're not looking at what's happening today. You have to think long-term. You have to think, you know, not just six years, but seven years and eight years. So the whole idea of, you know, environmental stewardship and sustainability, I think goes in lockstep with our industry because of a lot of those things that, that are different than somebody just making widgets today to sell tomorrow. Thank you for, for all of that. And I think it's, it's really interesting to see so many initiatives coming around dealing with, with these sorts of issues. So want to turn our focus a little bit to a, a different problem that exists at least a little bit. And so John, you've been in some recent news stories about your involvement with uncovering a counterfeit bottle of bourbon. And most of those news stories mentioned some nebulous chemical analyses that were done. And so I've been curious about what you did beyond the, the simple, did it have a lot number on it kind of thing as to how did you really dig into whether that bourbon was authentic or not? Well, first of all, the, the whole counterfeiting problem is, is a big problem for the industry. You know, as, as the value of the products have, have skyrocketed, the, the opportunity for people to counterfeit and, and take advantage of that has grown. And it's a real problem. You know, not just for for the industry, but for consumers. You know, if you if you you buy something, you don't know the provenance of it, you don't know what you're getting. It may or may not be safe to drink. So, you know, that's it's not just a, a financial issue. It it's a much bigger problem than that. But as far as the science to to uncover that counterfeit, you know, if we we did a number of tests on the the suspect bottle and compared to bottles that we knew were authentic, uh, everything from looking at the proof and looking at, you know, an, an analytical measurement of the color of the whiskey to see if, if it was the same. Th those are fairly straightforward, you know, but we do those in the lab every day. I, I talked earlier about using gas chromatography. So looking at that distribution of chemicals, you know, you, you've got ethanol, you've got water, you've got all those other things that, that really define what a whiskey is gonna taste like. So looking at side by side, are they the same? Are there 
markers that would suggest that this was maybe fermented from a different yeast strain because of the ratio of the chemicals that are present. And then we've got some other technology that we've been looking at that, that allows us to, to essentially fingerprint a whole bottle of bourbon through the glass. And you know, use, if we really want to get nerdy, we could talk about principal component analysis and you know, confidence intervals and how we can basically use some tools that will allow us to give a plus or minus, you know, is this authentic? Is this not authentic? So in that case, we employed all of those tools. We didn't want to be wrong. We wanted to make sure that we didn't just hang our hat on one, one piece of evidence. And so in that case, it was a number of, of tests, some pretty straightforward, some fairly complicated that, that all pointed toward the same direction. So we've had a few questions from the audience. So the first one is that the pharmaceutical industry searched worldwide for new and interesting, I'm sorry, I'm not a biologist, actinomycetes, something along those lines. What's the story for looking at new and interesting yeast? Well, I mean, I can uh, address that to some extent. You know, the yeast that's always been used to make most all distilled spirits is Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is a very specific species of very specific genus. And, you know, when looking at, again, I mentioned earlier on, you know, firm solutions, we have a repository of over 9,000 different yeast strains, and most of those aren't even in the Saccharomyces genus. So there's Pischia, Cluveromyces, and, and some of these yeasts, like I was mentioning the uh, dairy farm that we were visiting, ha- trying to help them make alcohol out of their yogurt whey, which is which contains lactose, which lactose is a disaccharide composed of galactose and glucose. So uh, there's a yeast in the Cluveromyces genus that will actually produce a lactase enzymes to break that sugar down, and it also makes alcohol. So there's a lot of other genera besides Saccharomyces that are capable of making alcohol. It's just they've not historically been used to do so. So I think there's a lot of room going forward, and and we're definitely going to do it in the next few years. But there's a lot of potential for using other yeast to make not only distilled spirits. In beer, you know, you're already seeing Britannomyces. You know, you hear Brett uh, associated with sour beers and this and that. So people are getting more complicated and more complex with their production strategies. And certainly other yeast strains will be incorporated into that. Great. Thanks. Another question that is, is really sort of interesting. John, you may have some insights to this with some of the work that Buffalo Trace has done. Can you go back in time within the oak to find the perfect decade of growth for making the perfect stage for maturation? Well, that's tough. Probably not, is my inclination. One of the things that, that Buffalo Trace did probably 15 years ago, it was before I started with the company, but we had a project called the Single Oak Project, where essentially we did a design experiment looking at oak from different areas, different uh, topologies, you know, top of a hill, north side of a hill, top of the tree, bottom of the tree, uh, graded them on a number of characteristics. And, and what we found is that you know, even if you cut the trees down on the same day, and there, there are pictures of Harlan doing that, you can produce vastly different whiskeys. So it's not just the climate, it's the whole combination of climate, microclimate, uh, what happens to the wood after it's cut down as, as Pat alluded to earlier. 
So I, I don't know that there's a particular decade or date that would be better than others. I think there probably is some things to learn about, you know, depending on climate, wood will grow at different rates and the, the grain tightness will differ, which will affect the aging properties of the whiskey in the barrel. Uh, so all those things are important. I don't know. It's a great question. I, I don't know. I think whatever wood was used to make the bourbon you're drinking at any given time, that's probably a really great wood. Also, sort of similar to my standard answer to the question that almost always comes up, which is, what are, what's your favorite bourbon? And the politically correct answer I often give is, whichever one's in front of me at the time. So, um, does the bourbon industry use any genetically modified yeast, or are any of the enzymes from genetically altered bacteria? I'm not aware of any beverage alcohol distillery using genetically modified yeast. But certainly most distilleries, whether they know it or not, use genetically modified grains. So genetically modified isn't something that doesn't happen in, in beverage alcohol. <clears throat> most of the enzymes that I'm aware of and the enzymes that our company markets are made from natural bacteria and fungi. So those, to my knowledge, aren't genetically modified. Once you get over into fuel alcohol production, which there's not much of a concern for flavor and it's not really a food grade product, there are definitely some of the most prevalent yeast strains are genetically modified. They're modified to produce certain enzymes. And then there also are enzymes that are produced from genetically modified organisms in fuel alcohol, but to my knowledge, not in beverage alcohol. So we're getting close to the end of, of the time, and, and I just wanted to wrap up with sort of one quick question, which I almost always get, and I, I imagine Seth hears a lot as, a, as somebody that's an educator, which is, how do you get started in this industry? And I know all of you have some great input on that, and, and as Seth said, Pat and John, you guys are are always really giving of your time to students. And, and I personally have benefited from that and appreciate it. But if we could just go around and maybe start with Pat um, and, and what advice would you give to some young student that's wanting to get involved with the science side of bourbon? Well, you know, like coming out of college, for example, there's a lot of opportunities. If you go to ethanoljobs.com, that lists the jobs that are available in fuel alcohol. If you go to ADI, the American Distilling Institute, their website, they've got a newsletter that comes out every week or every couple of weeks. The last one I saw had 15 different jobs from Ireland to California to Texas. So there are a lot of entry level jobs. Uh, a lot of the companies like our company, Firm Solutions, that markets yeast, enzymes, technical support. I mean, we've got several competitors that sell yeast, enzymes, I mean, DuPont. Lollaman, there's so many different companies that service the beverage and fuel alcohol industries. So landing a job at, at some level, in my estimation, is not hard to do at all. And once you get a foothold starting off, even as a simple operator, some of the most successful people that I know in this industry don't have any college background. They just got a job at a distillery early on and worked their way up. And some of those people are six, seven figures now. So it's ripe for the taking. There's a lot of opportunities to get into this industry. If you want to actually have your own distillery, you better be ready to open up your pocketbook. Um, you know, for us, when we started our first company, we were broke. So 
uh, we're still broke to this very day. So as long as you you're, know what that feels like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not a bad business to uh, fund, but uh, you got to be ready to, you know, really put capital into it if you're going to be in the ownership side of the distillery. But there's a lot of ways of getting into it. Seth, how about, how about you? What's your advice other than uh, attending UK and becoming a part of the Jim Beam Institute there? What's, what's your advice to young students? I, I think we focused on in the less on those students who are wanting to start their own distilleries rather than those that want to go work for John or for Pat. We, we, we have an annual conference and there was a very good economic breakdown in the last conference from um, CoBank and they did a really good analysis and it really showed the curve there at which scale the distilled spirits industry became profitable and more profitable perhaps than, than beer and wine at certain volumes. And, but at lower volumes, it was more difficult than beer and wine. And so I think really having a very good understanding of what they would be entering into and really a clear vision, as Pat said, to making that volume commitment as, as part of the education process and I think a lot of the students want to meet the workforce demands, their local industry, and they want to go and, and work in these great businesses that aren't just in Kentucky. I mean, the, the general brand portfolio touches every distilled spirit in the world. Might go work in England, working on gins or Scotland, or you might go to Jamaica and work on rum or it's a global industry. And so students can certainly transfer their skills. I've had two students get poached by Gallo into work in the wine industry who were trained in incredible internships at Buffalo Trace. And so it's a competitive industry right now for workforce. And I, I think that's a really good place for our students to go. I tell them that anyway. Seth just stole my thunder because we have had incredible success hiring college graduates after an internship. So, you know, that, that year or even six months of, of real life experience so that you have some idea what the, the industry is really like, because I'm sure Pat, you would you would attest that sometimes it's not that glamorous. You know, when, when you got the shovel in the bucket and and it's dirty and stinky, and you're you're 14 hours in, it's probably probably not that much fun. So just recognizing what it's really like, and once kind of the the fanfare dies and the the, the honeymoon's over, uh, so I think getting that experience is really valuable. It allows people to to understand what they're looking for, and it allows employers to know that that people really are interested. Uh, short of that, you know, you roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty. So wherever you are, you know, once, once you get your foot in the door, it's all about working. And, and if you've got a science degree in this field, that all doors can be opened. You know, it's, it really is a neat industry in that a science degree can get you anywhere in the business because it really is the marriage of science and art along with you know, marketing and business and all those other things that go into it. But, you know, I'd say get an internship, get to know some people, start somewhere and, and go from there. And if any of them are listening, I know that Pat and John have some great internships and, and Pat in particular has taken a lot of center students on in all the areas of the company, um, not just the science side. And that's much appreciated. And along those same lines, thanks to all three of you for being here tonight. I appreciate hearing from folks that are really doing this work every day and learning from you and hearing about that stuff. But that's the end of our time. So I just wanted to say thank you to all of you. 
Thanks to everybody that came out tonight to listen and hope you learned at least a few interesting things about the science that goes on before that bourbon hits your glass. And so with that, we'll, we'll call it a night. Thanks so much, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. See you next month. Thanks so much. That was Dr. Lenny Damaranville of Center College, Dr. Seth DeBolt of University of Kentucky, Dr. Pat Heist of Firm Solutions, and Dr. John Medley of Buffalo Trace Distillery, speaking with Amanda Fuller of Kentucky Academy of Science about the science of bourbon. You can catch the first half of this discussion on our SoundCloud page that's linked to the forwardradio.org website. And then we'll also provide a link on our Facebook pages, along with some information about the speakers. Thanks much to all the participants in this intoxicating discussion. You've been listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. See you next week.